0: Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Coming up on today's programme, why be just a social media influencer when you can be an owner? This week, Elon Musk snapped up over 9% of Twitter's shares and later I'll be joined by Rupert Neat, who's the wealth correspondent with the Guardian newspaper to help us try and figure out what exactly the Tesla billionaire is up to now. As retailers offer everything from IV drips to yoga zones to try and get their customers back, we're seeing a big shift in shopping centres as they move from sales to social spaces. We look at what's happening here with Retail Excellence Ireland Managing Director, Duncan Graham. And as voting commences in the French presidential election, it seems that there's a battle royale on the cards between Emmanuel Macron and Marianne Le Pen. Laura Marlowe of the Irish Times gives us an update as we head into the final phase of the election. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, earlier this week, Elon Musk, the owner of Tesla, bought up a significant amount of Twitter shares and in doing so, he nabbed himself a place on the company board. But what does the development mean for the platform, for us as users and for the company? Here to discuss is Rupert Neat, the wealth correspondent with The Guardian newspaper. Rupert, you're very welcome. Thanks
2: for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Now,
0: I just wanted to look at Elon Musk himself. His business is not necessarily in the social media sphere, but he has over 80 million followers and he uses Twitter regularly to get his own message out. Tell us what he did this week and why he's buying up so much Twitter stock.
2: Well, he revealed this week that he's been buying up Twitter stock over like quite a long period of time and he now has 9.2% stake in the company. Um, which is like four times more than um, than Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. Um, so because he got so because he has got so many shares, he now gets a seat on the board. So he'll be able to help, uh, you know, sort of direct Twitter in its next, um, you know, what it does, because obviously Twitter is um, it was super popular, but it's um, sort of fallen to be less popular and its share prices declined like that as well but since he was revealed to have this huge stake the shares have suddenly risen a lot.
0: Yeah talk to me about the platform itself as you referenced there it's losing some kind of pop some of its popularity and what's been happening to it?
2: I think it's just sort of um it's got really divisive hasn't it I mean we all sort of use Twitter well we use Twitter and like I personally, I used to use Twitter all the time mm. and like to like promote my stories or follow the news and talk to people. But now it's sort of really divisive and on lots of issues, whether it's, you know, politics or trans rights or anything about sort of free speech and woke issues, it's really divisive and a bit sort of, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a very nice environment sometimes. So I think You know, I've stopped using it and I think maybe lots of other people have stopped using it, too. And you just sort of don't want to be involved in a big argument every day.
0: Yeah. Um, Just go back for a second to Elon Musk's motivation for getting involved. Um, As you say, he's been buying up stock for quite some time since January, in fact. And he availed of a filing regulation to conceal his plan and to hide his own identity. Um, Why do you Mm. think he did that? Why do you think he wanted to remain anonymous?
2: you know there could be a couple of reasons couldn't there but you know maybe one of them is um he knew sort of the bump it would give the share price if he if he was seen to be you know building up such a big stake so by concealing his identity maybe that helped keep the share price down a bit and he could you know continue buying them at a lower price rather than you know up 30 percent since he was revealed to um have this big stake,
0: yeah, and the stock itself itself when he bought it, it wasn't exactly cheap stock um it, so it it looked a bit more like a strategic investment that went beyond money. but can you just talk to us a little bit about what happened the stock after the revelation that his stake was 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 finally made?
2: Oh yeah, so it, it went up about uh twenty seven percent on the on the day it was revealed, and then up a bit more uh since then um and but then today it's like um fallen a bit but it, you know it's risen to its highest since uh 20 2021 so you know it has had you know quite a big impact and i think that's because investors think that you know he'll be able to help um turn the company around he's already said you know outlined some of his plans for twitter and he wants you know he sort of suggested that he thinks people should have the ability to edit their their tweets once they've sent them um and he's obviously very keen on on free speech and allowing everyone to speak so people are worried about what that might mean about um donald trump and other people who have um you know been blocked from the platform you know will they be allowed back under under musk i mean he's just a director but he is a director that's also a near 10 percent shareholder so you know his opinion will count for a lot
0: if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Rupert Neat of the Guardian newspaper about developments at Twitter. Um, now, as you mentioned there, Elon Musk has now got a seat on the Twitter board. Will that allow him to have a hands-on approach to the Twitter model? Will we see him push for a more active role in, man- in the management of the company?
2: It's not It's not a management position. It's sort of, you know, he's on the board. So it's a, you know, it's a team of people that advise and... the the executives and direct the company, Um, but... uh, But he could influence
0: the company in a way that he he couldn't before. If you just look at his shareholding now, he's got four times greater shareholding than that of the Twitter founder, Jack Dorsey. Um, So you'd wonder, um, you know, can he start to affect the type of changes that he wants to like things like introducing the edit button now on the board?
2: Oh definitely. I think, you know, and um even the uh you know the, the chief executive of Twitter has said that, you know, he he welcomes him uh to the board and he um you know, he wants him to suggest his his advice and uh he says he's looking forward to um to making significant improvements to Twitter in the coming months. With, yeah, I read
0: his 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 comments and he, he also said he's a passionate and um, intense critic. And as an intense critic, it's exactly what we need. But I'm just wondering, do you really think that they're going to welcome him with such open arms?
2: I think the other shareholders are welcoming him. Most of the other shareholders are welcoming him are working with open arms because of the, um, you know, the boost to the, to the share price that it's had from him being involved you know we know from that elon musk has a lot of opinions about everything you know and he he tweets them all the time and you know that has got him in in a lot of trouble before so we we know that he'll he'll express his opinions and he'll fight for them strongly um with the other twitter board members so you know, maybe their life will get a little bit more <laughs> complicated going forward.
0: If we, yeah, the shares in, in the platform Sword, as you mentioned earlier, um, his stake then has already grown. I was just looking at the prices they started in January at thirty six and now are at fifty dollars. So, there's already suggesting that he's offloading some of the stock. Do you think that this could be just an investment issue?
2: It could be, but you know, he's he's the world's richest man with um you know nearly two hundred billion dollar fortune. He doesn't need to be doing this for the for the money. Mm-hmm. He you know, and he has said before about how much he he loves Twitter and you know before this he was talking about setting up his own sort of rival platform to Twitter. So. I think, um, I think he's more doing this for you know, his love of the platform and his love of the ability that uh, you know anyone can have this platform to talk to everyone else more than he's doing it for the money.
0: Um, while he was buying up the stock over the period of those three months, uh, he was tweeting away himself, making suggestions about the platform and running some polls. Are there any corporate governance or regulatory Regulatory concerns about his behaviour vis-à-vis share pricing and and trading as a result of 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 the revelation of his stake in the company. Now
2: you know he has fallen foul of the of the SEC, which is the the mm. US stock market regulator, before for for tweeting things that have had material impact on um, Tesla, his his car company. Um, so I think he's got to be really careful about um, what he does um, tweet going forward about Twitter and other things um and with tesla every tweet that he does that could have a a material effect on tesla's share price has to go through tesla's lawyers
0: okay well thank you very much Rupert for taking the time uh, to to give us your fascinating insights into this um that is Rupert Neat from the Guardian newspaper thank you for joining us today on news talk
2: oh no thanks very much for having me
0: coming up next what's next for irish shopping centers after covid You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. The convenience of buying online has put retailers under pressure to offer more than just a shopping experience to lure their customers back to their stores. To discuss the issue, I'm joined now by Duncan Graham, who's Managing Director of Retail Excellent Ireland. Duncan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hi Mandy. Now, talk to me a little bit about Retail Excellence Ireland. Who exactly are you and what do you do?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so we represent around 2,000 retailers, all different shapes and sizes from the sort of Brown Thomases and Harvey Normans at one end uh, through to the small independent uh, boutiques and gift stock shops and so on at the other end. So you know, very broad spectrum um, and of course something that's been keeping us very busy over the last two years as I'm you can sure. well imagine.
0: I'm sure. So um, Duncan, You've seen um, shopping centres, retail outlets deal with everything that's happened over COVID in the last couple of years. But can you just talk to me about uh, the fundamental changes that that has resulted in 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 terms of consumer behaviour? Uh, We're going to go on to talk about the shift in retail space. But what has changed for consumers?
1: Okay, well, I think... um there's a number of things. I think the first bit is that, uh, you know, we've all got used to being locked down during during COVID. We've all got used to being uh, unable to go other, anywhere other than sort of five kilometres from where we live. And as a result, we've discovered things close to where we live that we now uh, have enjoyed shopping in. So we've been supporting those businesses local to us for quite some time. Um, And that in many, many respects has been a good thing. But it's meant that we haven't been visiting our out of town shopping centres, perhaps as much. Um, We've also had this situation where non-essential retail has been shut for nine months out of the last two years. Um, And as a result, you know, that again has pushed us to shop local. Um, but then, of course, the other side of this is we've very much gone online. So the transactional shop, the weekly grocery shop or the, you know, the desire to pick up something that, uh, you know, can be can be bought to the click of a button with Amazon. You know, that sort of thing has happened a lot more over the last two years than we've ever seen before. So in essence, the whole of our shopping habits have changed dramatically over the last two years and and probably won't go back. Or they, de- they definitely won't go back to where they were pre-pandemic. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got used to the doorbell ringing and the delivery driver being there with a the package. And, you know, we quite enjoy that. Um, so things have changed dramatically.
0: And do you think um, that all of these changes were happening anyway and now it's just accelerated because of COVID?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, certainly it was predicted that we'd all start going online far more than we have done or were doing. And um, really what's happened is these changes that were estimated to take five or six years took place in nine months. Um, That was the speed of the change. Mm. I mean, at one point, if you take November 2020, you know, 51% of all the purchases we were making at that time were online. I mean, it was dramatic. Um, You know, it's now settled back as stores have reopened. But uh, there's no doubt that that transactional shopping, uh, is, is being done more and more online and will continue to be so.
0: And what has this meant for retailers? How has it forced them to shift their offering?
1: So people that were on the journey of going online, retailers were on that journey beforehand. Some of the larger players have just really pressed the accelerator button on it. Um, smaller retailers, many of our members, have been forced into getting themselves up on an, an e-commerce site, setting an e-commerce site up and running uh, very quickly. Um, you know, they've very much availed of the grants that have been available through uh, Enterprise Ireland and through um, the local enterprise offices and so on. So they've really pivoted, and I think one of the things that we've found is that retailers in Ireland have been incredibly resilient and incredibly adaptable, uh, and have really changed their business model in order to accommodate. But you know, many of them also during COVID took the opportunity to have a really good look at their business and, and you know revamp their business, bring in new products really focused on experiential retailing, perhaps more so than they'd ever done before. So, you know, huge shift and in many cases a very very good shift uh, that's taken place for Irish retail over the last two years.
0: And talk to me about that experience notion within shopping centres in particular. Yeah. how have you noticed the change in the mix of tenants in a retail space to facilitate this more um or a need from consumers to actually you know share an experience in a, in a shopping center as opposed to just a destination to buy things mm. how has that changed
1: so so i think if you've only got to go back sort of 2 or 3 years go back to 2018 2019 and look at the look at the retailers that were present in our shopping centres. You know, If you walk around Liffey Valley or the Crescent Shopping Centre in Limerick or Man Point in Cork, you'd have found that a lot of those retailers that are present were UK multiples, you know, the top shops of this world, the Debenhams that we're all very familiar with. Um, those businesses pulled out of the Irish market. They pulled out because there was a sameness to what they were doing. There was a lot of, there was a lot of businesses, particularly UK multiples, that were doing very much the same sort of thing. Now, you know, those were forced to exit. They they were teetering on the brink, many of them, and COVID came along and they they simply exited the Irish market. And what that created was an awful lot of vacant space across not just our shopping centres, but also our town centres. Mm. Um, and there was a real need for both shopping centre owners and retailers to have a really good look at what was left and to understand what is it that's going to bring people back into uh, to this location. You know, they, they had the benefits of... Car parking, um, a lot of it, you know, f- car parking that was free or or paid for. But that was a benefit. Um, but we needed to do more. You know, we needed to get these people off the couch uh, and into something uh, back into the shopping centres in their own right. And, and I think really what's happened over the last two years is people have had a really good look at what they're offering is and have bought in more hospitality, more restaurants, uh, more things that are that experiential bit. And I'm thinking of um you know toy stores and 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 uh, wellness place wellness centers you know things where you can get you know those uh those items that, you know, perhaps you've only, you know, you've, you've been wanting to pick up and that really you wanted to, uh, you'd never really sort of thought about your shopping centre as the place to go for that. You know, the gift stores and all of that sort of thing that are emerging. So, um, you know, and sustainable products as well. That's That type of idea is now, you know, you'll find those in your shopping centres as well. So a really big shift in terms of what's on offer. And I think the other bit that's happened is that because there has been a lot of this vacant space um, you know, shopping centre owners have done deals on pop up shops and so forth. You know, short term deals to get people across the line to uh, maybe give them a you know a, a, a rent free period to try something out. Um, you know, prior to to then going back onto a, onto a full rent. So there's been a lot of those changes taking place. There's been a there's been a bit of a movement, albeit not a massive movement yet, but a bit of movement towards transactional uh, charging. So, you know, to pay a flat rate, uh, a flat rent, uh, is a retailer paying to a, to a shopping centre owner. But then, you know, that's topped up by, by some sort of uh, rent payment based on turnover and so on. So, you know, lots of things that are changing and have uh, helped.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to look at that cost issue from a retail perspective mm. for a second, because as we see more... Um, you know, leisure uh, activities, if you like, coming into that um, s- s- shopping centre space, mm. surely that has implications for the service charges for the mm. retailers. Is there a difference between what they might pay for a shop, say, and something like a restaurant or uh, an activity space? Is that a concern or yeah, a consideration? Yeah, there has been.
1: There yeah. has been. And I think, um again, that's something, you know, even going back to the, to the middle of the pandemic, one of the things that, retailers were very concerned about was the levels that they were being asked to pay mm. during periods of lockdown, you know, when in effect our, our shopping centres were ghost towns, um, you know, only a couple of two or three retailers that were operating in them. So, you know, uh, and many shopping centre owners had to literally turn the lights off and reduce down the, uh, the, the, the security and all of the utilities in order to keep the thing rolling. Um, and that did cause quite a lot of debate between retail and, and shopping centre owners in terms of, you know, just what can I afford? And I know that, you know, for a long period of time, um, you know, after we reopened, there was a lot of debate between retail and landlords around, you know, what needed to be paid for periods of lockdown. Um, And I think on on average, you know, certainly from a rent point of view, that tended to be sort of 50% deals or Mm. rent-free periods for for, for, for a set amount of time, uh, simply to keep the retailers alive um but you know more and more what we're seeing now is newness creeping back into our into our shopping centers but that comes at a deal it comes but you know you you have to be careful that the deal you're offering, offering to uh, somebody coming through the doors is acceptable to the people that you've got around you that are, you know, existing tenants. So,
0: And, and what are you seeing um, at Retail Excellence Ireland in terms of the footfall? Is it meeting the expectations post-pandemic? And we're still trying to get through it, but is it back to the levels that you'd no, anticipated?
1: It's it's not back to the levels of pre-pandemic. Um, having said that, you know, there, are, there have been some peaks. So, for example... You know, if you look at uh, the Brown Thomas opening in Dundrum, for example, the week that that opened, and clearly that did generate a lot of extra footfall, uh, and that was back to to levels that were had only been seen pre-pandemic. So but again, that's back to the experience. You know people wanted to come in and see something new. And you know Brown Thomas in Dundrum was a prime example of that. You know you you look at what happened when we did unlock uh, back in May of uh, I think it was the seventeenth of may, twenty, 2020, twenty, twenty twenty one last year. You know, when we opened up for the first time, the queues outside Pennies in our shopping centres. You know, the number of kids that came back in uh, to, to to spend their uh, to spend their their pocket money and so on during that time was remarkable. So, you know, it's changed in that sense. Yeah. Um, and and of course, we've had that really up until very recently. We've had that extra income there that is being burnt through mm-hmm. uh, and that's kept retailers going of course we're now facing into a very different a very different scenario and
0: that's absolutely. something that retailers and and customers alike are facing that um, it's not just the consumer behaviour that's changing for for the retailers. It's the supply chain issues that they Absolutely. have to deal with. It's the cost. It's mm-hmm. the inflation. It's the energy cost for retailers. But also they're going to be dealing with a very different type of consumer. One has, who has very concern potentially about their, their income. Um, so money is tight for both the shoppers and costly for retailers. Do you think that the environment is going to get extremely challenging for retail space again in the future, in the near future?
1: Yes, I, I do, unfortunately. And I think it's um I think we've almost had this false situation towards the back end of last year where we thought, you know, things were good and um, you know, we were still uh, being um, affected clearly by COVID and staffing issues and all of those things which, which made life difficult for retail. Um I think we got we got into January and, and things look were looking up. Um and then of course uh, the situation in Ukraine from really March onwards or the end of February onwards has really created an awful lot of uncertainty around. It's clearly put up prices, uh, you know, fuel impacted prices, but also we can see it starting to come through in food now. Um, And that means that disposable income, you know, that discretionary spend that consumers have got is being squeezed. Um, And that means that more and more retailers have got to be competitive they've got to be offering newness they've got to be offering difference they've got to be offering experience in order to get consumers to come in and spend Um, so it makes life harder and um, do you have issues with staff the retention of staff or the acquisition
0: of staff is that something that the retail sector is facing at the moment
1: yeah it's probably one of the biggest factors Um, you know we We were talking with a group of HR managers yesterday, only yesterday, in terms of what were the key issues, and very much what was coming across was uh, can't get the people. um, You know, the demands that people are uh, are wanting now in terms of the hours that they're prepared to work and the benefits they're looking for and the pay pay rates are significantly different from where they were pre-pandemic. And of course, the other part of this is the Irish retail industry was held together by a lot of migrant workers Mm. um, who, during the pandemic, for very good reasons left left the economy um, and that's left a huge hole so you know, if you look at some of the data around this there are something like 10,000 fewer customer service roles in retail now or customer service jobs the, the vacancies of these jobs um, than there were in 2019 and 20, early 2020 so you know huge shift and um, retailers are, are needing to fill roles like never before
0: um, You mentioned earlier the opening of the Dundrum shopping centre which Caused quite a stir when it had that offering of the IV drips, which you know a lot of a lot of Brown Thomas, yes, Brown yeah. Thomas, a lot of uh, talk about it as a a novel offering. What are the other types of things that we might see uh, in the future that's offered in shopping centres that we couldn't have contemplated in the past?
1: So uh, I think one of them, uh, some of the interesting ones that I'm seeing, for example, uh, you know Lego moving in, and it's not into a shopping centre, but it's into Grafton Street. You know, I think we will s- we will see. More and more international retailers coming into the Irish market. We've seen it in, you know, with Canada Goose coming in and Lululemon and things like that. Um, I think we'll see, see more of that. Uh, we've seen a lot of the Danish uh, homeware chains, you know, just not just IKEA, which you are all familiar with, but JISC and Jisk, people yeah. like that um, coming through. So I think we'll see that type of movement. But I also really do think we're going to see Irish entrepreneurs trying something different. And I, you know, the other side of this is is Frictionless shopping—you know, going into to stores uh, with simply your mobile phone, taking you through the gate. Uh, uh, you know, being able to shop, put things into a basket, and as you leave, you don't pay for anything. You just go out, and it's charged to your to your Revolut account or whatever on your phone. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. You know, Amazon have been doing it for quite a number of years now. So we'll see those sort of changes and trends coming in. Um, so I do think we're going to see a. A big shift, and I, you know, I do think there is going to be more of those experiences. You know, you mentioned the IV drips. I think we're going to see a lot more sustainable stuff going on. So, um, you know, we're seeing people renting out, and Bran Thomas is a prime example, renting out um, high-end ball gowns, for example, because you know you can rent it for a week. There's things like that happening, mm. um, and I think we'll see those things becoming much more trendy uh, for the future as well. So.
0: You mentioned there the, the frictionless shopping and uh, of course we've all become more accustomed to the online shopping and in some ways retailers now have to be online and physically present. Absolutely. But final question for you, um Duncan, what's to be said of the person-to-person sales experience? Is there still a place for that in this new world?
1: I, I totally hope so. I absolutely hope so. And I think there is because again it comes back to experience, doesn't it? I think that's one of the reasons... You know, if you, if you look at we we've missed our tourist business, haven't we, for the last two years? We've not seen an American tourist in in, in Ireland up until recently with Patrick's Day. Those people want an experience. They want that Irish hospitality. You know, and the interaction that, that interaction, happens that across sort the counter, yeah. Um, those are the things we want. You know, the who's who survived really well during during COVID. Butcher shops, grocer shops, mm. um fish shops. You know, those types of businesses have really survived. Why? Because people have been going in. They've wanted that experience. They want to talk to somebody and say, you know, I've got a dinner party I'm running tonight. um, Give us a few ideas and have that interaction with the butcher. So I really think those things are are, are going to be here to. St- to, to stay and actually I think that's been a benefit of Covid that it's brought those businesses out more and we appreciate them more than we ever did before so um, you know I, I do think that's a, a positive step I
0: think you're absolutely right and the old saying the customer is all right is not lost in this discussion for sure and for now we'll have to leave it there though that's Duncan Graham Managing Director at Retail Excellence Ireland Duncan thanks for joining us in studio today thank you up next we go to France to hear about the most divisive election since World War II You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, the French presidential election is happening in the shadow of a war at the heart of Europe. And last month, Laura Marlowe was in Ukraine reporting on the crisis there, but now she's back in France and she joins me to discuss the election as the candidates enter the home stretch. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today on News Talk.
3: It's a pleasure, Mandy.
0: And we'll turn to the election campaign, Lara, in a moment, but you've reported on many wars in the course of your career. Um, what were your main takeaways from your time in Ukraine and how do you see the war evolving?
3: <laughs> um, actually, there's a quote from the Ukrainian foreign minister today, uh, which pretty much sums it up for me. Uh, Dmytro Kuleba, he's called, and he said, I think the deal that Ukraine is offering is fair. You give us weapons. We sacrifice our lives, and the war is contained in Ukraine. Uh, mm. And that I thought that was a very accurate summary of it. Um, I've also heard today uh, several analysts saying that we're entering a third phase of the war. Um, the first phase, of course, was from 2014 until until February. The second phase was February 24th and, until now, and the third phase is as the Russians re, uh, redeploy all of their forces to concentrate on the east, on Donbass. And it appears that Putin, basically, that that's what he, he wants to get this time. He's going to try to eat up Ukraine bit by bit, and he's going to, to swallow and digest the east first. Uh, and, of course, President Zelensky is telling everyone to leave eastern Ukraine because they expect this huge Russian offensive um, to, to start or to continue, actually, um, like what they're doing to Mariupol in, in the southeast. Uh, so I, I think that's where we are. Um, it looks like it's going to be a long war. Uh, and In the beginning, no one knew. Um, it looks like the Russians are not going to take Kyiv, at least not in the foreseeable future, and they are going to concentrate on the east.
0: Now, against that horrific backdrop, the election is happening uh, and uh, France is also coming out uh, of a pandemic. Can I just ask you, what is the energy around the election in France? Um, Are are people actually engaged in this presidential election campaign?
3: Not uh, much less than usual. Um. Strangely enough, I mean, it, it has totally been dominated by the war in Ukraine. Uh, Emmanuel Macron didn't even declare his candidacy until early March, which is, is I mean, usually a, a, an incumbent president would declare in sort of November, December at the latest. Uh, and uh, the, other, the other reason why it has not evoked uh, much enthusiasm is that it seems like a, a chronicle of an election foretold. Um, people have been saying, analysts and polls and, you know, all the predictions for a very, very long time, that we would have a replay of the election in 2017. That is to say, Emmanuel Macron versus Marine Le Pen, the, the far-right leader, the leader of the national rally, which used to be called the National Front, as you remember. Uh, and that, that is almost certainly what is going to happen. Although the, the third candidate, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's far left, uh, has a lot of dynamism. He's five points behind Marine Le Pen in opinion polls, and it, it's it's unlikely, but it's not impossible that he could actually uh, beat her to the runoff. Uh, so there's not there's no surprise, and everyone is talking almost as if the first round on Sunday was not even really happening. We're already mentally in the the the, the two weeks between the first round and the second round. Everyone is is in that contest between Le Pen and Macron. I think what is really stunning, though, uh, is that the far right, for the first time, uh, if you base your uh, findings on opinion polls, has, more, has a third of the electorate. Uh, yeah. Marine Le Pen is – and, and that, that is amazing. It, may, it means that the, the extreme right in France is the single biggest political group. They're not united, of course. The, the vote is divided between Le Pen, Éric Zemmour, Nicolas Dupont-Aignan. But if you add the three of them together, um, by most polls, it's it's about 33% of the electorate intends to vote for the far right.
0: Laura, can I just take you back a little bit there? You mentioned that um, at the outset, it, it seemed like it was going to be a replay of the previous election. And when we spoke a number of months ago, that's how it was. But um, in the intervening period, the gap between Marianne Le Pen and Macron have, has certainly closed. What has changed to make that happen?
3: Mm, it's happened quite recently, actually. It's happened since uh, around since mid-March, and she's gained seven points in the opinion poll since then, and Macron has lost four. Um, and I think it's that Marine Le Pen has been quite successful in restyling herself, Um She's made huge efforts to appear to be close to people. Uh, everyone calls her by her first name. It, it, whenever anyone refers to Marine, you know that they're talking about Marine Le Pen. Nobody calls Emmanuel Macron Emmanuel. Uh, in fact, he once scolded a, a teenager who called him Manu, which is a diminutive of, of, of Emmanuel. Uh, so she's, she's done this amazing public relations job. And she's also, by not. Talking constantly about Islam and immigration. And uh, she's made people forget that she was associated with hatred Mm. and racism and And, xenophobia. And actually, her program has not changed. She still has the same positions. Uh, For example, she wants to ban women wearing wearing headscarves anywhere in public in France, Uh, she wants to change the constitution. Uh, to guarantee that French people not foreigners have priority for employment for housing for hospitals everything uh, and, and so she, it, she and she's still very anti-european um, although she no longer says she wants to take france out of the euro or out of the eu um, she, she some people are saying it's like it's like a surreptitious uh, frexit mm. exit from 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 the eu so her her policies have not actually changed but but her emphasis Um, The the polls show that the biggest concern of French voters right now is purchasing power because inflation is so high, because fuel costs are are just shooting up because of the war in Ukraine and and the cost of food as well. And so she talks a lot about, for example, one of her her main measures is to reduce uh, VAT on energy from 20 20 percent to 5.5 percent. So that that would, you know, help people's pocketbooks and so on. So she talks a lot about the things that they care about, you
0: know. Yeah. And I think a lot of the issues which people are, are facing and struggling with at most that those costs of living issues suit mm-hmm. that side of her narrative. And she's dialing down the more extreme um, element mm-hmm. of it. But can we talk a little bit about um, the other candidate on the right, Zamor. Uh, Has How has his candidacy affected her vote?
3: Ah. Uh. Um, he's been a, a very he's he's actually done her a favor. Mm. I mean back in, in in late summer, he looked like a very serious threat to her because he was equal to her in the polls and people thought, well, maybe maybe this is the end of Marine Le Pen, um the will overtake her and, and you know, face Macron in the runoff. But uh by being more extreme than Marine Le Pen, by constantly you know, just banging away against Islam, against foreigners, against Africans, against Arabs, and, and so on. He's made, made Marine Le Pen appear to be nice.
0: Mm. Uh,
3: he's kind of played the, the, the bad cop role. And in the end, it, it, well, actually, what, what did for him was his support for Vladimir Putin and Russia, uh, and it's only since the the invasion started on february twenty fourth that he's really fallen in the polls. He's down to around nine percent now mm. and he was he was about fifteen percent before that. Uh, but he said he said uh, Putin was right to invade Ukraine, that Ukraine had always belonged to Russia, um that they spoke the same language until the thirteenth century, or whatever about the last eight centuries. <laughs> I, I don't know, and he also said, and this is probably the most damaging thing to his candidacy um in a country that has Tremendous sympathy for the, the, the Ukrainian refugees, uh, as in Ireland, for example. Uh, Zamor said, Well, you know, a, a, a refugee's a refugee, a migrant's a migrant. Uh, and he considered them, you know, migrants just like anybody else, which, I mean, I suppose, strictly speaking, um, you know, a lot of people are saying it's very racist that we didn't treat the Syrians and the Afghans and the Iraqis and the Sudanese the same way we're treating the Ukrainians, and they have a point. But uh, to hear it in that way mm. coming from Zamor uh, was, was very damaging to him. And what
0: of Macron? Uh, has his diplomatic efforts on the world stage, um, his efforts to try and be a power broker in the Ukrainian war, um, have, that hel- have they helped him at all? And how present has he been in this campaign?
3: He's been very absent in the campaign until this week. Um, there's a kind of last minute catch up Drive going on. He's giving. He's got two a two-page interview in the Figaro today. He was on Le Parisien newspaper. I had him on a kind of live chat this morning. He's got an interview in Le Télégram. So he's he's giving a lot of interviews, especially to print media. And his uh, deputies, if you like, his his followers or acolytes are going around and and pointing out some of the 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 hypocrisy what they see is the hypocrisy of Marine Le Pen and saying she's incompetent that she's a demagogue sounds like so, sounds like
0: they're a little bit worried, Lara.
3: Yeah, I think they are worried because you know there's still five to six uh, percentage points mm. between them, but she's got momentum in her favor. She's going up and he's going down, mm. uh, and I think that that's a dangerous thing for him. Now maybe we're all you know people are sort of playing it, being scared and. Maybe most of the polls show that he will still defeat her, albeit by a much, much narrower margin than five years ago. Um, Most of the polls show that he will get uh, 53, 54 percent of the vote in the runoff, and she'll get 46, 47 percent of the vote. But also a lot can happen in, in the next two and a half weeks before the um, the second round of the election.
0: Indeed. You mentioned another candidate earlier there, Mélenchon. Can you talk to us a little bit about the policies that he's been um, promoting, particularly those in relation to pensions and older people?
3: Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, well, all, basically all of the extremist candidates, and I'm including uh, Mélenchon, Mélenchon with them, uh, want early retirement, like age 60, um, Mélenchon, um, he, he, he started with a socialist party and he broke off with them, uh, to, to basically form his own party, which is called La France Insoumise, France Unbowed. Uh, he wants, he wants a sixth republic. He wants to do away with the, the present, uh, republic. He, um, he also was... Was pro-Russian, but I think he's been he's been quite subtle about that since the invasion. Uh, he wants, uh, as I said, uh, retirement age 60. He wants to raise the minimum wage, but that almost all of the candidates do, except for Macron and, and Pécresse, who's on the right. Uh, he wants to freeze prices for gas and electricity. Uh, he wants to invest 200 billion euros in the uh, and ecological transition um, to fight global warming, basically. And he, the other thing that's very um, Mélenchon is he wants to reestablish the wealth tax. Uh, and he, he even talked about, I think he said that he would tax really, really rich people up to 90% of their income. Um so he, he's the oldest candidate he's 70 years old he's quite an orator mm. uh, and he's 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 done a very gimmicky campaign as he did 5 years ago uh he uses a hologram so say he he can be uh giving a, a speech in Paris and you will see him on stage in Dublin as if he were a real person you know with his hologram and that that always goes down very well um he he he's a, he he did he had a hard time for a while because there was a raid on his apartment, some kind of investigation a police raid, and he got very indignant. And he said, "I am the Republic," and I think this is kind of forgotten now. But he it did it did dent his popularity quite a bit. And Laura,
0: what do you think the outcome will be in the end? Who do you think will come out of this first round?
3: What uh, Macron and Marine Le Pen? I mean, that that looks. Pretty much like a foregone conclusion. Although, as I said, Mélenchon, who, who, who I mean, it would actually be very entertaining to see him debating Macron. He would be a much better debater than Marine Le Pen. And you remember five years ago, she lost because she made an abysmal performance in a televised uh, debate with Macron. Mélenchon is is, is very articulate man. In a lot of literary and historical references and so on. So, so that would be interesting to see. But I, I, I feel almost mm-hmm. certain it will be Macron and Le Pen. And I also think it's very, very likely that Macron will defeat Le Pen on April 24th. But one thing that I'm watching for, and um, I hear a political scientists in Paris warning of this, is the general anger and dissatisfaction in the French electorate. Uh, there's a, a poll that says that uh, 37% of of those polled said that they feel very close to the angry French. Remember the Gilets Jaunes revolt mm. um, of a couple of years ago. And 55% of the French say they're they're dissatisfied and unhappy. Uh, and as you know, this, this country has a very long history, starting with 1789 and the taking of the Bastille. But they have a revolution every every few decades. And uh, it's almost as if the rebels, the revolutionaries, are just waiting for this election to be over, and then um, they're all going to go down into the streets again. Macron yeah. says he's going to raise the retirement age from 62 to 65, going to do it in this coming autumn. Now, for one thing, it makes me wonder, are people is this really a wise ploy to get people to vote for you because marine le Pen and mélenchon say they 're going to lower the retirement age to sixty, and he 's saying he 's telling people you have to work longer and harder um, and I think there's going to be huge uh, backlash if if he if he 's reelected and if that happens.
0: Laura, well, they're fascinating insights into um, this phase of the campaign. I'm sure we'll be back to you to review the outcome. That's Laura Marlowe of the Irish Times. Laura, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you found today's topics interesting and informative. And if you have suggestions about topics you'd like to hear about in the future, we'd love to hear from you and you can email us on takingstock@newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. My thanks to today's guests and to the producer John Fardy with team of Simon Keane and Jojo Cardozo on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day.